Hi, it's the 19th of March, 2021. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, it's all about great associations with, how about hepatitis C, amyloidosis, and of course, scleritis. This and more on the podcast. Let's start with what happens when you decide to withdraw IL-17 therapy in patients with psoriatic arthritis. What? Well, actually, that was the objective of the SPIRIT-3 clinical trials where biologic-naive patients um, being treated with ixekizumab, TALTS, for 36 weeks, those patients who actually had achieved an MDA, minimal disease activity state, very hard to do, were then randomized to either um, continue their ixekizumab or to withdraw therapy. This is sort of the JRA, Enbrel, um, open-label run-in design and randomized withdrawal. It actually limits the exposure of patients to placebo. Gets you, I like this design. Gets you the best answers, I think the quickest. And you're looking to see what happens when patients withdraw therapy. So in this study, again, patients in MDA were then either stayed on the drug or they withdrew. And as you would expect, significant relapses when ixekizumab was stopped. The good news is that when it was restarted, most gained control. It took a few weeks, but it did work well. So that's sort of a repeat, a repeat story amongst biologics that if you do stop, you can probably regain control with a biologic. Uh, this was goes a long way of proving that it obviously works, um, but also that you probably can't stop therapy that's working well. So patients who are in remission, near remission, I always think it's a bad idea to withdraw therapy unless there's a compelling reason to do so. So uh, speaking of compelling reasons to use hydroxychloroquine in COVID, why would you do that? Well, I don't know who is doing it anymore, but uh, JAMA actually republished the results of a hydroxychloroquine prophylaxis study where hydroxychloroquine goes head-to-head against that powerhouse drug, vitamin C. This study was actually designed to see if... Uh, for those people who had uh, exposure to COVID-19, what would happen if, and that was, and basically that means you would go home and maybe you would infect everybody within your house. So they treated a household. I think in the study they treated like over 600 households with either hydroxychloroquine or vitamin C. And the objective here was to see uh, who would not get the infection. And unfortunately, Um, Although these people were exposed, 89% were test negative for COVID-19 going into the study. And overall, it did not matter if you got hydroxychloroquine or vitamin C. C, Basically, the same rate of infection occurred, very low rates in both arms. That's about 330 in both arms. About 50 people in both arms developed uh, um, COVID-19, suggesting that either vitamin C is incredibly effective or that yeah, hydroxychloroquine is not the right choice in patients with COVID. I like the study that comes out of the UK. I think this is 11,000 patients studied uh, from the THIN database. Uh, don't ask me what THIN stands for, but it looked at patients followed over a 21-year period and looked at the epidemiology of developing scleritis. Uh, and, what, and that could be inflammatory scleritis or infectious scleritis. And what they did show was that the incidence of scleritis did decline significantly over this time period of 21 years, dropping from 4.2 to 2.8 cases per 100,000 individuals who were followed. 
They did show that overall scleritis was at a, a, had increased the odds that you would have either an infectious or inflammatory mediated inflam, uh, immune mediated uh, inflammatory disease of the eye. So a twofold increased risk. Who is at increased risk? Well, here's one association that you can think about. The one that I found a little bit shocking was GPA. Not that it's associated, but that the odds ratio was like 51. A 51-fold increased risk of developing scleritis uh, if you uh, uh, actually developing scleritis if you have GPA. Another one that's very high was Bichette's, a nine-fold increased risk. The other associations with an odds ratio of three or higher included Bichette's, reactive arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, Crohn's disease, not ulcerative colitis, um, ankylosing spondylitis. Again, odds ratios ranging from three to as high as 51. So I think you should take a look at the New England Journal this week. They've got a really nice review. It's a full read view of extra hepatic manifestations of chronic hep C infection. They do, they've got a nice review of mixed cryoglobulin, mixed cryoglobulin, cryo, ooh, I can't even say it, mixed cryoglobulinemic vasculitis. Yeah, that doesn't mean I've seen many of these. Um, and I think what I liked was the other information that was in there about some of our syndromes, including that there's a significant overlap in the SICA symptoms associated with hep C infection, chronic hep C, and Sjogren's syndrome often the two being undistinguishable between the two. It's estimated that about 30%, up to 30% of patients with uh, chronic hep C will have sickest symptoms. Uh, and yes, they too will have positive SSA and SSB antibodies. We certainly do know about fatigue in uh, patients with hep C and that a lot of those patients, in fact, do have fibromyalgia, but hep C can do it. Interferon therapy can do it. Um, fatigue is a big confounder here, but it should lead you to look for fibromyalgia, if not other causes. But the sole cause could be hep C by itself. And lastly, autoantibodies. We do know that any form of chronic liver disease has a very high association with autoantibodies, including autoantibodies you're not supposed to see, like double-stranded DNA, etc. In this review, they say that hep C patients have a, about a 70% uh, of them are rheumatoid factor positive. Um, up to 40% are ANA positive, 15% have anti-cardiolipin antibodies, and 7% with anti-smooth muscle antibodies, um, not just specific for other forms of liver disease, but also found in chronic hep C. I think the big news and surprise news of the week comes from the FDA's announcement that they're extending their new drug application review for apatacitinib and its indication for use in psoriatic arthritis. The data looks very good. We reviewed it at ACR, um, you know, showing that UPA works really well at both skin responses and joint responses, MDA, enthesitis, dactylitis, uh, x-ray protection. All of it looks very good. But the drug was due to be approved for use in psoriatic arthritis roughly this week. Um, and instead, they got a, a notice from the FDA saying, uh, that we want to further review some data and that they're going to make a decision on this in the second quarter, by the end of the second quarter of 2021. That means probably by June sometime, we'll know whether UPA will be approved for psoriatic arthritis. But right now, no, it, no, it is not. Uh, uh, the data uh, came out this week about the use of uh, Actemra, an IL-6 inhibitor, in patients with COVID. This is the Remdacta data. It sounds like the uh, other acronyms that they've used. Remdacta actually stands for remdesivir along with Actemra in patients who have 
um, severe COVID-19 pneumonia. The primary endpoint in that trial was uh, that it's improved time to uh, hospital discharge. It did not meet that endpoint, nor did it meet many of its other secondary endpoints. Again, very confusing about whether IL-6 is a great drug or not so great drug in patients with severe COVID pneumonia. I think it has a lot to do with the timing and the patient selection. Someone should do a meta-analysis of all the IL-6 data to really come up with a clearer view as to where that should go. My view is that it needs to be given to patients who are hospitalized, severe, and within 24 hours of being put in the ICU. In those studies, it looks like it has had the greatest efficacy. Another surprise report, I don't know how to explain this, but beta blockers may lower the risk of knee OA and having knee pain that would require consultation or for either hip or knee uh, with orthopedics. Again, this is a matched cohort study from a large UK registry, over 100,000 people looking at those who are on beta blockers and basically showed that beta blocker use was associated with a 10 to 12% reduced risk of developing knee OA. Moreover, if you were on a beta blocker like atenolol uh, and propanolol, um, you had less need for, there was actually less need for knee or hip pain consultations. Uh, and that, that now it, in those two particular beta blockers, the uh, benefit could be as high as a 22% reduced risk. So the mechanisms underlying this, I'm not too sure. Um, but I do find it compelling. I hope to see more research on this. A nice study comes out of a, a French cohort that analyzes their patients with traps and amyloidosis. Of their 41 patients, they showed that um, amyloidosis was in fact uh, diagnosed before TRAPS was diagnosed. In 96% of the cases, in fact, it preceded the TRAPS diagnosis. The bad news is that, as you know, TRAPS patients do get amyloidosis. It is a bad complication. It can be associated with significant renal disease and amyloid in many other organs. But in this cohort of 41 patients, half of them needed to go on dialysis. If you're a nephrologist, you don't use the word dialysis. You call it renal replacement therapy. I don't know why. I like dialysis. Hemodialysis, you know, hemodiffusion, peritoneal dialysis, doesn't really matter to me. I like dialysis. Moreover, 14% of those patients died uh, within a median of 23 months of follow-up. While half those patients received biologics, 10 of them improved, 7 stabilized, 4 worsened. But still, there were a high number of patients who did go on dialysis and did die. So it's a bad complication. One of the takeaways of this particular paper was that if you diagnose amyloidosis, maybe you want to test for traps. Ask about fevers. Do they get fevers and febrile inflammatory episodes every, you know, two, three weeks? That would suggest traps. I think heretofore we would say if you get diagnosed with traps, you might then do an extensive investigation looking for amyloidosis or be on the lookout for it. They're flipping that and saying if you have amyloidosis, think about looking for traps. So a primalast, I have two nice reports about a primalast. I think there's hope for a primalast yet. In one study, um, we do know there was a pilot trial of a primalast in uh, patients with ankylosing spondylitis. While there was some early data suggesting it, it might work, the later data didn't. This is the phase three trial of 490 patients with ankylosing spondylitis who were randomized to receive either placebo or a primalast at either 20 milligrams or 30 milligrams BID. It didn't matter because it didn't work. 
the ASH-20 response rates were the same for placebo and both doses of Primalas, roughly about 30-35% with no significant differences, nor were the X-ray changes seen over two years, suggesting that no, a Primalas is not going to work in ankylosing spondylitis. But you know what? It may work in psoriasis. Oh yeah, it's approved for psoriasis, but wait, what if it's severe psoriasis like pommel plantar psoriasis? You know, those patients are really difficult to manage. Well, we've got a study this week from India. Uh, 84 patients, reasonable, pommel plantar uh, psoriasis, not responding to other therapies. The primary endpoint being a modified POSI 75. It's called a modified pommel plantar POSI 75. Say that three times fast. And, and they did show a significant um, uh, improvement when they compared this to methotrexate. So patients either got a primalast at um, 30 milligrams BID, or they received up to about 15 milligrams of methotrexate a week. And the success rate was the same between the two. Now, methotrexate isn't particularly known to be a highly effective therapy here, but it does have some efficacy. In this trial, 41% responded to methotrexate, 33% to aprimolase. Those were not significantly different, although it did favor, I must say, methotrexate, suggesting here that aprimolase may even work in the most severe cases of psoriasis, albeit in a minority. But this looks like a lot of the other data that's seen with psoriasis. It's not a big-time success drug, but when it works, it works really, really well. Hence, it should be considered. That's it for this week on the podcast. You know, tomorrow is the beginning of Room Now Live 2021. It's not too late to register. Go to roomnow.live. You can be one of over 300 people who will be attending the meeting. We hope to see you there. Also, be sure to send us your cases that are interesting and your interesting questions that we could feature here on the podcast in the future, go to Backtalk. You can find that on the email or on the website in the lower left-hand corner. Click on it. You have to do it from your desktop. And uh, don't give me four minutes of history. Give me a short vignette, and let's get on with it, okay? We'll see you next week. Take care.